Hello, I'm Julie. And this is a Good Story is Hard to Find podcast. Where two Catholic friends talk about the books and movies they love and the traces of the one reality that lie below the surface. And who, boy, have we got reality this week? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, brother. Well, Well, it's it's a road trip to end all road trips. It is. It's a a nonfiction road trip. Mm-hmm. Along the Blue Highways of America. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Blue Highways by William Least Heat Moon. I didn't realize that he coined the phrase Blue Highways and then it came into popular use. Hmm. I, I don't know that I'd heard that before encountering this book. Um, oh, okay. And, and what it refers to is the old, I guess, the Rand McNally or, or whatever, the road atlases. Mm-hmm. Um, the roads at that time, uh, the, the interstates would be red and the two lane roads would be blue. And I don't even know if that's true anymore. <laughs> and I was just using a big road atlas, believe it or not, last, well, a couple of weeks ago when Tom and I went to Fredericksburg, which we'll talk about more in a little while. And, um, I can't remember if those roads were blue or not, but they were definitely a different color. Um, we had a we had a bad road trip experience years ago where we were stuck in horrible traffic. We had no map and the internet wasn't working and we were almost out of gas. And after oh that, boy. I said, I am never not having paper maps with me. Hmm. Good idea. So I have a big yeah. 2015 road atlas on the theory that most of these roads aren't going anywhere. So. Hmm. Yeah, and they shouldn't be, right? <laughs> right. Fingers crossed. <laughs> they shouldn't be. Uh, this this fellow's name is William Trogdon. Um, that that's his. I guess. Oh, is you, it? We would call it an Anglo name. Yeah, he's part Osage Indian and part um, Caucasian, and his father is where Heat Moon comes from. Mm-hmm. And um, he's got some brothers, you know. Who? <laughs> so he's least because he's the last. He's a caboose. Right. He's the last in line, right? So he's least Heat Moon, and and his father used to say. To him, um, I got this from an interview. I don't know if this is in the book, but he he said, you know, use uh, least heat moon for spiritual things and use Trogdon for business things. Okay. I know <laughs> so, the name is talked yeah. about in the foreword to the book that I've right, got. Right, right. So. Yeah, so I, I actually don't recall if that detail was in there, but I listened to yeah. an interview. and Okay. Um, so that that's what he was saying. So, But uh, William Least Heat Moon is the the name that he went by, you know, in this book. Mm-hmm. And it was published in 1983. Um, mm-hmm. He uh, took this trip that he describes, uh, it took him a, probably about three months or so. And then it, he wrote the book in four years' time after that. Yeah, through like eight versions of the book. Yeah, yeah. As he was trying and trying to get it published. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, so he basically is trying to come to terms with being separated or divorced. Yeah, he's, he's really at a, at a crossroads in his right. life. You know, so it wasn't just that, but that was a main thing. Um, but he also had a job. Up. Yeah, he also had a job that was oh, disappearing. Right. Um, he was like an associate professor or something at a college that was In Columbia, failing. Missouri. Yeah, in yes. Columbia, Missouri that was that – was, uh, uh, de- in decline, I guess you would say, and um, uh, at least his department was. But anyway, he was ended up with no work, um, and then his marriage was falling apart. And uh, one of the things he did to deal with that is he packed up his van, uh, got the money together that he could, which was something like $480, and uh, went on the road. And he said, I'm going to drive across America and I'm not going to use any interstates. I'm going to use only blue highways, only the the two-lane roads. And so he generally went from Columbia, Missouri. He went straight east to the coast and then basically drove a circle around the United States. Yeah, and down through the south and to the mm-hmm. west coast and then up the west coast and through the northern part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All the way, all along the way, meeting people um, and uh, talking to them and writing it down, I guess, at the time. 
I don't know if he had a tape recorder or anything at the time. Would have been 79 or something. He said he had pages and pages of notes. Okay, so he's taking notes throughout. Yeah. Because I don't think he was actually, I think it was kind of like his own diary to himself. And then later he said, it, the afterward I read was talking about getting the book published and what happened. And, yeah, yeah. Um, then he just was saying that, you know, he had all these pages and pages and pages. Because one of the things that I liked is when he's packing up, He's packing up, you know, I had a duffel bag with this. And and he goes, and one thing I had was a duffel bag that was full of, like, notebooks or notebook paper and pens. Mm. And that's when I stopped and went, okay, when was this written? 1983 or came out in 83. And I was like, oh, okay, that checks out. And I, because I thought, and he was an English professor, which comes out in unusual ways just in chance references he'll make to authors or bits of writing or something else as he's kind of looking at a person a place um a situation and going oh well as you know dickens said blah 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 <laughs> and i was like what william least heat moon and then i'm like oh right you're an english professor so this you're kind of steeped in this way of thinking as well as whatever your father taught you because that kind of native thinking will come out also Sure. Um, right. So it's kind of a real interesting layered look at things that I didn't expect. Yeah. And um, I would add to that that he carried with him two books that he refers to the most often. And that was Leaves of Grass by Walt Whitman mm. and Black Elk Speaks by John Neilhart. And uh, he quotes from those books a lot. Uh, that's more true. more than he does the other ones, but those are that's because he had them with him the whole time. So if he was parked somewhere and needed something to read, that's what he would read. So that's funny. That makes me think of. So he's got these two books, mm -hmm. neither of which would I pick. So when we read A Gentleman in Moscow, the one book that he takes with him that he reads is Anna Karenina, and I'm just like, one book. Oh no. You hate to be that person who's like, well, I have to have the Bible. <laughs> so what yeah. would my other book be? Right. I, I <laughs> no. think I can – Is it? would it be Lord of the Rings? I'm wondering. I think it might. Because it is – it's so rich, you know. Yeah. It's kind of the complete book. That yeah. or – or, and these are two other odd choices, um, Uncle Tom's Cabin or Dracula. So these are my three – is my trio of inspiring books. So what about you? If you could – I'll give you the Bible. I have to think of it. Well, I think that I would take, you know, just off the top of my head, yeah. um, Lord of the Rings is definite, right? It, it, right. But if it didn't have to be one, I think that Ted Chang would be somebody I'd take with me. Oh. Because I just love those stories and what that brings up. Um, so maybe maybe the s stories of your life and others, maybe. Wow. Yeah. That sounds like hard reading to me if I was like cast adrift from everything I knew. But, well, that's how different we are. Vistas, so there right? you go. <laughs> right. There, well, that's, and then yeah. that's the point of having different points of view. So that's sure. interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's All off right. the top of my head, not having thought about it no, no, a bit. That's, but how interesting. Yeah. And it's know. so interesting that you brought up um, A Gentleman in Moscow because I couldn't help, you know, having just finished that and then reading this. They're very similar, actually, in that, um, you know, in A Gentleman in Moscow, it's really his, his life, his observations, everything. Um, I mean, there's so many interesting things that occur in between events, you know, in A Gentleman in Moscow and how mm -hmm. he says things and the observations that he makes and his thoughts. And that's what this book is full of. It's, in fact, there was even um, one quote that I highlighted and let me see if I can find it. I mean, that was just almost lifted from a gentleman in Moscow. I was like, that just reminded me so much of it. It had something to do with um, uh, metal being used for different things, you know. Oh, um, I think I, yeah, I remember the gentleman there it is. in Moscow to, quote. to melt warships into Ferris wheels, that had to be progress, ah. is, a, is a line from Blue Highways. And um, in... Um, a gentleman in Moscow, it said something about, um, was it cannons and coins or was it cannon? It was cannons being melted into church bells that's and then it. church bells being melted back into cannons. And thus, yeah, that's exactly right. And, yeah. that, and thus is the nature of, or 
uh, of iron ore or something like yeah, that. Something but like anyway, that. Anyway, yeah. it was like the same sentiment exactly to melt warships into Ferris wheels. That had mm-hmm. to be progress. So it's it's a, a very similar thought, and I was like, oh, that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought of that, but in, in that you're you've got that essence of the fact that he's isolated from everything, while he's still kind of able to view all the people and places he encounters as kind of a a moving panorama. It's kind of like the hotel was to the count. Yeah, very much so. That's that's really true, because he he does waver between this um, this idea of he wants to be alone, but he also wants to be with people. Um, right. you know, in, in blue highways. So he's, mm-hmm. he, you know, every now and then he'll say, I've got to stop driving now because I'm going nuts, you know? And, and, and then that's one of the things that I think that I like about this book a lot. Um, well, very early on, he meets a monk, you know, and, <laughs> and it, it is, it's, it's interesting to me that this, this thing that we have, or some people have, I know I have it sometimes and we do it during Lent is go into the desert, you mm-hmm. know, but, but for him, this reaction to this turmoil in his life is he kind of wants to go to the desert to figure things out. And what is that urge in us to go to the desert to figure things out? And th- this whole thing is a meditation on that, even though I don't even know that he realizes it sometimes. Sometimes right. he seems to. Like when he's talking to the monk at the at the beginning, um, he says something about um, that he's wondering why would anybody want to be a monk, and he's he's like I can't imagine wanting to be here and be a monk. Well, what are you doing, dude? You just packed your stuff up, you put it into a van, and you're driving. It's like you're being a monk. You're in a way you have chosen this life, even though it's temporary. Um, so it's it was like I, I I think he was blind to the fact that these people are doing a similar thing, right? Because the essence of both of those things, I think, in, in, in as defined through William Least Heat Moon's experience, I'd say would be detachment. Mm-hmm. He's det- he's been detached from his job and his marriage, and so now he's traveling around, kind of casting around for. He doesn't know what. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Something. Right. Something. And of course, yeah. when you become a monk, you wind up being, you're detached from the world in various ways, depending on the kind of uh, religious order that you join. And it's, but you know what you're looking for. I mean, you may not know a lot of the things that you need or that you are searching for unconsciously, but you know you're looking for a greater connection with God. Right, and to serve yeah. him, and this is mm-hmm. what you think your vocation, or you know, for most people, it is what their vocation is. They're there to serve and pray and do whatever else. But he doesn't know that. He's looking for the vocation part. Yeah, very true. And and um, you know, so he asks, you know, why why did you give up Wall Street to become a monk? You know, it, it's like, well, what are you doing? I mean, look at yourself. And 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 this may be just a really nice way to open that open the book right is to have these monks here so it is like you know this is the journey that he's about to take and there was two things that um i highlighted in the 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 monk section that i want to talk about Mm -hmm. yeah um the first one is the the, so i guess you know first of all we should say you know this is what the book is like you know so right now he's driving (laughs) and he's like in kentucky and he's meeting right and he's just meeting this monk and he stops in a monastery and he talks to the people and then he moves on right so mm-hmm. that that's what th- this is about so um you know so he of course you know like most people i think would he's asking the monks why are you here you know what what are you doing and um i really liked w- w- the there's a monk that was outside that he was talking to and this monk said look talking about the spiritual life is a lot of crap you just live it right Mm-hmm. I really liked that mm-hmm. because there becomes, to me, there comes a point in which you have to act, right? I think a person can get mired in thinking about it. It's like, I, I want to figure this out. I want to know why. I want to know this. I want to know that. When the answer could possibly be, you just need to live it. 
and these yeah, the, things will these answers will come, right? Right. It's it's the stepping out in faith to live it, which is um, what God makes possible in your life a lot of the time through throwing inconvenience at you. And it's not that he's throwing it at you. It's that mm. life is full of inconvenience and problems and troubles and all these things. That's your opportunity to live your faith. And uh, now the monks, of course, aren't, are doing a different thing with it. But no. um, yeah, that's, that's the, you've got to stop just talking about it. Here you are, you're faced with it. Yeah. And I just think, you know, that was a decision that was made in my own life that changed mine. You know, I, I've described before how I was looking at all different things, you know, it's like, oh, the Islam is interesting and Mormonism is interesting and Catholicism is interesting. You know, look at all this, you know, and I'm kind of bouncing around the top. Well, there comes a time where I had to act and it was like, well, I have to give thanks. I have this inner need. What I'm doing here is not, it's not what I need to do. You know what I mean? Mm, it's not that mm-hmm. I need to ignore these other things. That's not what I'm saying at all. But unless you participate rather than just observe until you actually step out and do it, you can't understand the things. That's so true. There's just a certain level at which you'll understand, but you'll never really understand until you step out and, and say, I'm going to live it. Right. And that's the case with so many things in life. I'm thinking right now just about cooking. Mm-hmm. You can read recipe after recipe after recipe, but until you've cooked a dish and seen what really happens, and you can't learn to adjust. You can't learn uh, what those printed words mean in real experience, and that's just a real-life example. And so how much more for the spiritual life, which is something that you can't tangibly put your hands on? Yeah. You know, you have to say, I'm going, like you, I've got, I'm going to give thanks. Mm-hmm. Well, who do I give it to and why? And those are things that you can think about. But sometimes that's Dorothy Day's experience was that she had a child and she was filled with gratitude and joy. And she thought, well, who am I grateful to? Oh, it's God. Mm-hmm. It's just like you with your experience of, you know, time to do it. Right. Don't yeah. sit back and look anymore. Yeah. There comes a time, you know, and, and to say that just in a sentence, you know, I mean, this, this monk gets these questions all the time, I'm sure. And, um, you know, some of the monks in the monastery are given this job, basically, you know, you're the one who's going to greet people when they come in so that the other monks can stay in their cloister. Or they're not really cloistered, but you know what I mean? They're, Right. You know, not everybody has that job to to meet people, you know. And so I'm imagining that this this one uh, person gets the question all the time. And for him to just say, listen, talking about this is just crap. You got to live it. You know, is it's just his answer in a nutshell. And it's it's just uh, it's it's well said. Um, it just it means what it means. And and. It's just so very true that you just mm-hmm. have to decide to do rather than just read about it or mm-hmm. watch it on TV or whatever. You know, you've got to step out. You've got to step forward. Right. Well, so. he probably gets this question a lot more than a lot of other places. You you remember where it was, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Gethsemane Abbey where Thomas mm-hmm. Merton was. Right, yeah. So they're going to be, mm-hmm. not that, I mean, William Lee's Heat Moon mentioned him. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't really interested in him. Yeah. Um, it's like he was somebody was, he had heard of or something. Right. Because he was, in, you know, he wrote books and yeah. things. And, right. But it's one of those things where I think in his own lived experience, if you've read The Seven Story Mountain, um, is exactly that. Is he kind of bounced around, bounced around, bounced around, and then went, well, now I've got to actually face it and do it. And it's, the, it's my favorite uh, exchange that he and a friend have which also expresses exactly what you're talking about. And it's about the need to be saints. And I'm going to repeat it here, mm-hmm. which is that he and a friend are walking along and his friend says, so what is your goal in life? And he goes, Oh, well, I don't know uh, to write great books to do this. And he goes, no, your goal should be to be a saint. Mm. And he says, the first thing he thinks of is, Oh man, that's so hard. Then I have to really change and give up all my little sins that I want to hang on to. And it's like, well, uh, that's so hard. I don't think I could do it. And his friend goes, no, you have to tell God you're willing. 
God takes that and does the rest. Mm-hmm. And the telling God you're willing means I'm going to at least act that way, even if it's just halfway. Right, yeah. That's what you have to start the action yourself. Your action is being willing and stepping forward to do it. God does the rest. You can't make yourself a saint. That's impossible. <laughs> um, so, the other thing that I highlighted was um, it says there, he's talking to another monk more deeply about, you know, that. So, after dinner, um, mm. they, they sent a monk out to him and to talk to him. And he, he said, uh, this is no place to escape from what you are because mm-hmm. you're still yourself. In fact, personal problems are prone to get bigger here. Our close community and reflective life tend to magnify them. And um, this is something that I've talked to a person before who's done, you know, retreats that are like a week or two weeks long and silent retreats and things. And he said, you know, people seem to think that, you know, what you're doing is you're going there to relax, you know. Like you you go on a, this silent retreat and what you're doing is you're, you're sitting blissfully on a cloud and, um, you know, you're, but what's really <laughs> happening is you're confronting yourself and God. It's like these things in yourself that you're avoiding that are problems get magnified there. They don't disappear there is what he was telling me. And so there's something about these being silent for a lengthy time that brings this stuff out and makes it so you, you have to confront them. So, you know, like, like Jesus in the desert, when the devil comes and says, you know, I want you to throw yourself off this cliff because you're awesome. Right. The angels will save you. Exactly. So that's what the kind of thing that occurred that happens to you when you sit there alone, quote unquote, alone in silence these things are what comes out, right? Mm -hmm. And you have to deal with them, right? So it's not this blissful sitting on a cloud, you know, uh, uh, taking in the universe vibes. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? And and, and for him to say that, you know, I I love that, you know. um, This close community and reflective life tend to magnify them. So it's not a place that you go to avoid your problems is what he's saying. This is not what we're all, we're not all here because we've got problems we're avoiding. Because the problems we're avoiding don't go away, you know. Um, that's just what his point is. Well, and that was the point that was made in um, in this house of breed. Yeah, right. You're like, you don't run away here. You run to here because it's your destination and you're meant to be here. It's not where you go to escape from the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. The same thing. And, yeah. of course, that's the thing we can see in our own world, right? Where mm-hmm. what was the title of that book? Distracting ourselves to death or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's basically we have so many ways to distract ourselves we never stop and think anymore. Or yeah. just so, do anything without, you know, the earbuds in or mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah, no, no question. And and that, you know, I've felt this in my life several times, you know, and 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 usually again, that's the brilliance of Lent is this corrective thing where you're like First of all, you can think about your life and say, what is it that's causing this in me? What, what is it that's between me and God? What is it that I'm doing that is preventing me from looking at these things or confronting these things or handling these things? Um, and the church gives us this time of year every year to do this. I think it's just so great. And, um, but, um, but I just, um, I have felt uh, many times, you know, that the constant distraction prevents you from deep thought, deep prayer, prevents you from hearing what you need to hear, prevents you from acting what you need to act. Because you you can go through life and not even understand or know that you're being spoken to because you're pushing it out by constantly distracting yourself, you know? Oh, yeah. So it's like you're pushing these problems away. And the problems don't go away. They get larger, you know. Well, and to a kind of a lesser degree, that idea of Lent is a corrective time. And, of course, that's spiritual. Um, there is an idea that, <laughs> that we actually picked up from this book called A Catholic Guide to Spending Less and Living More. Mm. 
And um, but they said what they did in their family is twice a year they have a fast month, and they try to do it so it's like Lent and sometime midsummer, and it's not uh, necessarily spiritual. What it is is living as materially fasting. Mm. So when you want that book, you don't buy it because do you need it? Yeah. When you buy the mm. peanut butter, buy the store brand peanut butter. Don't have meat five times a week. Have it twice a week. You know, this kind of thing. And so what it does, and so, so Rose and I, and Tom is going along, uh, we're, we're just trying that out this month. And just to see, does it help us kind of reset? Because next month I can go buy all the things that I wanted to buy this month. But can I do without them for a month? How much mm. does it bother me? Do I really need those things? And it's kind of an interesting material way of doing what you're talking about on a spiritual level in terms of not listening to stuff and distracting yourself. Yeah. And Well, I, I think what you're saying is awesome. I love it. Yeah. Because because the material stuff is spiritual. And, you know, your, your connection to materials are, does affect you spiritually. Yeah, and you right. realize, how often do I buy that little Kindle book that's 99 cents? Well, you know what? Do I need it? Yeah. Does the library have it? It's 99 cents that I might use somewhere else later. Um, it's and, and we're trying to make sure we do it so it's not a hardship on the household. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you, you have other people in the house. Right. My mother, and in fact, to a certain degree, my husband, who's like, he's like, well, I'm on board, but, you know, there's no need for us to all live on, you know, lentils for a month, you know? And I'm like, no, don't worry. Mm -hmm. If we're having vegetarian meals, it's all stuff that we've already had before. It's just going to be minimal meat or minimal whatever. Um, And so right now we're fairly early in it because this is what, July the 8th or something. But it's been an interesting exercise because they were like, and don't the month before buy everything you think you're going to need. That negates the purpose. Just live your life the way you live it. And then try this. And so, if nothing else, what it's doing is making me aware of all the little careless uh, decisions I make without, do I really need this thing? Mm-hmm. Can we get by with less? And like you say, it's that, it's that physical reflection of the spiritual component. Yeah. I, so think, I think that's fantastic. It's um, an interesting little exercise. Yeah, for sure. And it's really yeah. what William Lee Heatman was doing, right? He's not going to get another job. He's deliberately mm-hmm. just sleeping in his truck most of the time. Mm-hmm. And um, yep. I agree 100%. You know, he's, he's headed to the desert, you know, without a full understanding of what that means to, mm-hmm. to him, especially here at the opening. I mean, another thing that I highlighted right there, he says, I looked at the faces of the monks. And he says, quietude. What burned in those men that didn't burn in me? It's like, what, what are you talking about? It's like, you you just packed your stuff up into a van and left. What are you talking about that this isn't burning in you? But you it know? isn't because he doesn't have the connection. They well, always he, know the connection they're looking for. Right. But I, I think that the impulse is similar. Oh, no, no. The mm-hmm. impulse is one thing, mm-hmm. but your direction and intention and meditation Mm-hmm. Uh, are different. And I was thinking that, you know, it's an interesting thing to me that this book is good and layered and all those things I was saying. But what I was surprised by was at the end, he didn't really have a conclusion. He didn't seem to me like he was better off. He just had all these experiences, which he could then share with everyone about, here's what America's like right now in all the places that nobody goes most of the time. And he had a few things like, well, you know, but he's still trying to call his wife and she's like, Oh, uh and hanging up on him and he's (laughs) upset. And so he hasn't really moved along because his thoughts seem scattered. Yeah. And maybe later he's able to take all that and do something with it. But because he doesn't have the intentional of one goal, he's just getting away and seeing what's going on. Mm-hmm. there's the difference between him and that's what those men have that he doesn't have. He may fall in and out of it, but he doesn't have the overriding direction. Right. So he, he can see that he's missing something. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I, I would agree with that. Yeah. So anyway, that's just, yeah. Um, 
Anything else about the monastery? No, 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 no. That's that's all. And and to me, the the book is just full of that. That's a theme that goes throughout the book. You know, with everybody mm-hmm. that he meets, um, he's asking similar questions. You know, and he's he's not out trying to meet more monks or anything like that. No, it no. It's just an interesting beginning um, to his trip. But um, this idea of the desert and um, trying to correct his um, connection to materials, you know, that, that he right. talks about that too. All, all of that right. stuff is a theme throughout. That's one well, of the themes anyway. And what's kind of interesting to me is after a while, what I started to see was he'd meet all these different people. Some of them are just, you know, kind of toss off extra, like a warring husband and wife that he meets for a short time and moves on. But usually when he's meeting people who he winds up talking to for a long time, they all have one thing they want to talk about. One thing they're interested in. Like there's a guy who's real interested in hang gliding and he's linking it back to his time in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And, um, he keeps coming back to it again and again. And of course he meets him while he's hang gliding. So that's natural. But you know, then the guys who are the fishermen, there'll be one guy who has all these things he wants to say about something. And what I thought was so interesting is all these different people all around the country and everybody's got one thing they're kind of fixed on. That's their special interest. And um, I don't really have anything to say about that necessarily, except that's what makes them into characters. And when he talks about the end of the book, uh, the afterward, he says, except in a case where like he couldn't find one person and somebody else had died, he went back and found all the people he talked to and read them or showed them their part in the book. Hmm. And he said they might not really agree with how he portrayed them necessarily, but they all liked the fact that they were a character. Hmm. I think that's super interesting. You know, I think he he talked to them mostly about like what they were doing either for a living or some obvious hobby. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, something that would get him talking, I guess. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but it's it's really interesting. But some people just wouldn't respond to that. You know, and you'd yeah. have to try somebody else. And he wasn't, he was usually just making conversation. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like he was going, and now for my book, I'll do this. So that made it all the more authentic. But it makes me think of you talking about him talking to the monks going, what do they have that I don't have? Mm-hmm. Well, he's talking to all these people. They all have some overriding interest. Yeah. And um, he, as the reporter, may or may not kind of understand or join in with what they're talking about, but he doesn't ever really express that. Um, the one thing he keeps coming back to is, you know, um, that I can think of is his ex-wife. Mm-hmm. And that's tangential. I mean, it's not like it's the only thing he thinks about, but it's the big important thing that will occur to him again. Yeah. Where he'll say, that's why I took this trip at the end of the book. Right. And one of the things that I liked, this is just a personal thing, is that, so this came out in 83. I married my husband in 84. And we read the book when it came out. So we'd been dating. Hmm. Tom read it first, and then he really liked it, so I read it. And it's funny to me how little I actually remembered of the how layered it is and dense, I would say. And um, so I, I picked it up, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, the type's smaller. Oh, my gosh, he's talking about more. I'm going to have to read faster, you know, and more deeply. But the other thing is, is that, so here we are in 2021, (laughs) much (laughs) older, more experience and everything. And I, this time, had a sense of familiarity with a lot of things in the book that I would not have had before. I hadn't had the life experience. And so, I'm going to just quickly tell you my list of those things. Okay. So, one is, he goes to Starfort. And somebody takes him on a tour of it, and it's a Revolutionary War uh, site. And uh, the people inside held out against General Green for a very long time. And they're talking about it, and he goes, oh, yeah, this this siege was written about in detail in the book Oliver Wiswell by Kenneth Roberts. I love that book. <laughs> cool. It's written from mm-hmm. the Tory point of view. Mm-hmm. It turned American history and history writing on its head head by showing the bad things on both sides. I mean, people were up in arms over this book. 
think it was written in the 50s. And it's somebody who went, he was one of the first people who did that trend that's now popular of going back and going, so we know what we say about the revolutionaries, but what were they all like? Mm-hmm. And what happened during these battles? And it's just a more factual, mm-hmm. honest telling. The revolutionaries still, you know, George Washington comes off good, but it's just um, because that's, he was good. Mm-hmm. But it was interesting seeing that and going, oh, Oliver Wiswell, yes. And then, of course, the, the Abbey that we talked about, Gethsemane Abbey with Thomas Merton. Um, then he gets to Louisiana and he's in Bro Bridge. Well, Bro Bridge, I've never been to, but my mother-in-law made this one kind of gumbo and nobody knew what it was. They just called it grandma's gumbo. And my husband was in, of all places, Oklahoma city in a gumbo restaurant or Cajun restaurant. They said, well, he could, this cook can make you anything kind of gumbo. And he goes, oh, you can't make it like my mom does. She's the only one who makes it like this. It's dark, it's thin broth, it's these things. And they bring the chef out and he asks, starts asking questions. He goes, oh, that's Roe Bridge gumbo. I'll make you some. Hmm. Comes back, it's just like his mother's gumbo. Wow, cool. No one knew <laughs> that came from Roe Bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, he gets to a point which is very lyrical. And I might read a little bit of it. It's where he's breaking out of the East Coast and he hits Texas. And he starts talking about the openness of the West And this is an experience I had when we had been, Tom and I had been traveling to the East Coast via car just to go to a a wedding. And then we went to Pittsburgh and we drove back through Ohio and Kentucky and all these places. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm starting to feel suffocated. I mean, I love these trees, but there's so many. And we hit this point and we came out of East Texas and hit Central Texas. And I went, oh yeah, now I can breathe. It's open. I can see where I am, the big skies, the big country. And I'd never had that visceral kind of experience before. Hmm. And he says, the true West differs from the East in one great, pervasive, influential, and awesome way, space. The vast openness changes the roads, towns, houses, farms, crops, machinery, politics, economics, and naturally, ways of thinking. How could it do otherwise? Space west of the line is perceptible and often palpable, especially when it appears empty. And it's that apparent emptiness which makes matter look alone, exiled, and unconnected. These spaces diminish man and reduce his blindness to the immensity of the universe. They push him toward a greater reliance on himself and at the same time to a greater awareness of others and what they do. But as the space diminishes man and his constructions in a material fashion, it also paradoxically makes them more noticeable. Things show up out here. No one, not even the sojourner, escapes the expanses. You can't get away from them by rolling up the safety glass and speeding through, because the terrible distances eat up speed. Even dawn takes nearly an hour just to cross Texas. Still, drivers race along, but when you get down to it, there are people uneasy about space. Hmm. Or there are, they are people uneasy about space. I don't know how I said it, but anyway. Um, And I read that and went, yes, I recognize this. And then um, he was talking about going to dime box. And I was like, oh yeah, that's near Giddings where my husband's family had a farm. Oh yeah. He mentions Giddings and LaGrange and I'm telling my husband, he's laughing. And um, then he talks about Fredericksburg, which is where I had gone the week I started reading this book. Mm-hmm. And that's a town in South Texas. It's on the edge of the hill country near San Antonio. And uh, one of the things we were there, we were there to celebrate our anniversary with a little weekend getaway. But one of the things that we were there to see was the Pacific War Museum, because Admiral Nimitz, who ran the Pacific fleet uh he was born there grew up there and as it turns out his grandfather had a hotel there that was known all around for being a place where you could get a bath and a meal and Mm. not just being a hut you could stay in and it became grander and grander and it's so funny because when he's talking about this in 1982 or 3 or 70 or 9 or whenever it is He's saying the town's kind of run down. You can see it's starting to slide into that small town thing where it might not recover. And he says, but the Nimitz Hotel is kind of broken down, but it's still standing there. And he kind of looks at it and he says, 
I can see a way that they would somehow use this Nimitz Hotel to connect with some legend that helps bring things back. And oh my gosh, spot on. Hmm. Because the reason we went to Fredericksburg also is it's a big tourist spot. There are shops up and down the main street. It is crammed with people. You can't find parking places on the weekends. Even the cruddiest little hotel is costing minimum $150 a night. And you better have your reservation a few weeks in advance. Hmm. You walk around there and it's like, we were like pandemic, what pandemic? You know, Mm -hmm. you could see the dots on the floor from where it happened, but everybody was shoulder to shoulder and things were back. And so to read his take on it and then say, oh, yes, of course, Uh, he was absolutely right because the Nimitz Hotel is part of a three site. uh, The the museum is Mm. is in three sites. Hmm. And um, there's a spot that's outdoors that has all these big like planes and all these things. There's the main uh, museum that if you just move along and don't stop and really concentrate on any one part, it only takes two to three hours. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you would love it, Scott. It's amazing. Oh, man. However, I, I would, yeah. Yeah, you, you, you mm-hmm. should love it. And then mm-hmm. you walk over to this Nimitz Hotel, which has been made into the Nimitz Museum. And it's about his life and growing up. And his influence was his grandfather. Because his father died before he was born. And so his grandfather is the one who was the male figure in his life who helped raise him to be who he was. Mm. And so um, he was both incorrect about the fact that this place was going to become nothing because you could see it sliding. Because what happened that he couldn't predict was Texas wine. The vineyards all started around there. Mm -hmm. And suddenly everyone's coming to the tastings. Everyone wants to take the tours. These places are doing fine food. Everyone wants to eat there. And that's what started it as a tourist place. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, yeah. But he was mm-hmm. right. The Nimitz Hotel is part of the legend now. Mm-hmm. That's neat. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's kind of funny to look at how he was kind of just musing on things and it kind of both worked and didn't work. Mm-hmm. So, that's the end of me boring you with all that list of those things. <laughs> but for me. not boring at all and not even yeah. a little. But that's that's interesting. Um, yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, he had places that I've been to as well. Um now, m- most of my life has been, um, you know, I noticed, you know, to say it in a blue highway way, along US 89. Okay. <laughs> so, US 89 goes from Canada all the way to Mexico. Um, at, at least, uh, I, I understand now that the southern part of it, like in Arizona, they've they've discontinued 89. Instead, there's an interstate and, and all that. But when I was going to college, uh, US 89 was Oracle Road in Tucson. Oh. And right now I'm in Logan, and or and US 89 is in the middle of town. Here it it goes up into the middle of town and takes a right, um, oh. but it's the oh, same. It's the same road, yeah. And yeah. so I grew up in Idaho Falls, and now I'm in Logan, Utah, and I went to college in Tucson. You know, so that that's straight north south road. Mm-hmm. Um, but he he barely mentions Tucson. You know, he flips through there, right. but there was a time where. He was talking to a Hopi Indian, and the Hopi Indian said he went to a, an Indian school in Brigham City. Well, Brigham City is just over the hill from Logan, and the the Indian school is not an Indian school anymore. Um, but but I knew exactly what he was talking about. And then, um, you know, my latest Blue Highway experience is actually this year. You know, similar to you, this year uh, my wife and I were like, we need to get out of here somewhere. <laughs> Yes. And we went to Newport, Oregon, and he goes through Newport here in this oh, book. Oh, yeah, he does. Yeah, he, he, and he mentioned that he just says it's a tourist town, and it, it definitely is. Um, but we had that blue highway experience where we we could have taken the interstate through Portland, but we decided to take the blue highway, and we had our dog with us as well. Mm. And when having the dog with you means you stop, yeah. right? So, yes. yeah, so the dog says, hey. It's time, <laughs> and then you stop, and uh, uh, it was it was cool. It, I liked it much better than the interstate. Um, you know, the interstate will get you there quick, but um, like we met a guy. I mean, one of the hotels we stayed at, we mm-hmm. didn't know we didn't have no reservations or whatever. But he had a German Shepherd as well. He was asking us if our German Shepherd uh, was fixed or not because. 
he's looking for someone to breed it with. Oh. <laughs> you know, and I was like, well, how can, you know, but it was just fun talking to him. And, yeah. And just the people that we encountered on those stops was something that on interstate travel, you don't really get. Um, right. And um, I, I really appreciated it. That may have got me thinking about this book again. Because um, I, I had read so. it, I had read it back in not that long ago. Actually, you know, the the reason why I read it in the first place was because someone at church gave it to me. Um, oh, it was a person, a, a fellow teacher in RCIA, said, "I have a book that I think you would just love. It's my favorite book." And oh, how she funny. she brings favorite it into me, and I read it. Yeah. Okay. So that was a couple years ago. Well, and it's funny. I forgot to mention the Blue Highway part. I didn't even think of it. My husband is a big one for you know. You can take the interstate partway. But mm-hmm. you should try to get the feel of a place. And so yeah. this mimicked another, we had gone to San Antonio uh, trip that we took years ago. And he goes, I said, we're going through San Saba, aren't we? Pecan capital of the world, everyone, mm-hmm. by the way. <laughs> if you like pecans, you're welcome from Texas. <laughs> um, it's got the mother tree there, which when they've done DNA testing and all that, it's that tree was responsible for like all these variety of pecans that are grown all over the place. Wow. Yeah. And when you drive through there, there's all these groves and or orchards or whatever you call them all, you know, like, woo. But the thing is, is even to get there, you're on these little two lane highways, you're, we're missing roads, we're doing whatever. Uh, Tom's phone ran out. I was like, yes, my paper <laughs> map is coming in. We were driving around a county square trying to go, oh, well, to get to this Mexican restaurant over here, which we're dubious of, we're going to have to go around this back way through this weird road. Guess what we found? Some of the best barbecue we've ever come across. Oh, nice. So it's that kind of thing that you're talking about. You have yeah. those experiences where we would have been at a McDonald's or at best a Whataburger <laughs> yeah. on the interstate. So uh, there's something to making that effort, you know, on on this Newport trip, um, we stopped at a a diner. Um, well it was, it was a bar slash diner. Half of it was a bar, half of it was a diner. I mean, they weren't in the same room, but, um, yeah, just the experience of being in there and talking to some people, um, who were talking politics at the bar. <laughs> so yeah. it's just fascinating, you know. So here you are in the middle of Oregon, Burns, Oregon, um, right there in the middle of the state, um, you know, and uh, just learning what these folks are worried about. Right. It's just, uh, it's interesting. It, and it's, wor- it's so worthwhile. Um, oh, yeah. And, and, we, and, we t- and you talk about food. Um, that is such a huge part of this book. Um, you know, we've, we've talked about food and, um, you know, the best cook in the world. Mm-hmm. Again, I just love that book. And then <laughs> um, when spinning plates, especially the part about oh. that big diner. Right. Um, I don't know if you'd call it a diner, that big restaurant. It's a right? restaurant. And mm-hmm. speaking of Blue Roads, when we had to go to a wedding up there in wherever it was, mm. we specially planned our trip so we could take the blue highways and go there. Oh, that's so, cool. Yes. That is, that is so awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but there's, there's, it reminded me of those two things um, because it was in the stopping at the diners, talking to the waitresses, talking to the person that was there at, you know, eating, you know, this is how he met a lot of people. Um, but, it just had that feel to me of the, that spinning plates or, you know, the best cook in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, the stories around the food. Um, and I just loved his calendar system, too. I was just going to say, yeah. how many calendars were in that diner is what I want to know. <laughs> That's the best. We, I, there's a place called the Dude Ranch in Malad City, Idaho, which is a town I lived in for a long time. And... Um, it's definitely a four calendar. Place. Oh, thank goodness! <laughs> it's the best. It's got the homemade pie. Oh, <laughs> yes, because we stopped off at a place called the Coffee Cup, K O F F E E K U P. Thank you. <laughs> Been going since nineteen sixty eight. Family Diner, uh, and uh, they did not have a single calendar up, and I was very sad about it. But uh, they did have seventeen kinds of homemade pie. Seventeen kinds. All I could tell you is the key line oh, was excellent. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Here in Logan, Utah, the place is Angie's. Okay. Angie's is that place here. My goodness. Yeah. And it's all very good. Breakfast especially. 
I think oh. breakfast is my favorite. In a blue highway restaurant, breakfast mm-hmm. is, you know, my favorite. The old Frederick, uh, the old German bakery in Fredericksburg Ooh, for breakfast, anybody. Oh, do man. it. Oh, that's oh. the best. That's cool. Oh, I love so, it. I love it. Yeah. But the calendar yeah. system, he says, uh, there's an infallible way to find honest food at just prices in Blue Highway America. Count the wall calendars in a cafe. So no calendar is the same as an internet pit st- or an interstate pit stop. One calendar is pre-processed food assembled in New Jersey. Two calendars, <laughs> only if fish trophies are present, do you eat in a two calendar. <laughs> Three calendars, can't miss on the farm boy breakfast. Four calendars, try the homemade pie too. Homemade is spelled H-O-M-A-D-E. Yes. And then the five calendar is keep it under your hat or they'll franchise. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's too funny. And then he says, one time I found a six-calendar cafe in the Ozarks, which served fried chicken, peach pie, and chocolate malts that left me searching for another ever since. Oh. Yeah. Six calendars. Six calendars. I can't. Can you hear the the song that? Oh, Nirvana. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Oh my gosh. Oh. You know, what's crazy is we are almost done talking about this book. Um, oh, no. I can't believe how much, more. how much time has passed so quickly. <laughs> but I think that's what this book, this is what this, the, the value of this book is, is what it brings up. Yes. You know, what it brings up. But I would love to hear what else you have to say. What, what okay, it, so as know. fast as I can, which we yeah. know is not going to be fast enough. <laughs> um, one of the things that I liked... And and this is kind of talking, this goes back to that theme. You started off with the monks and with what was he looking for and all that sort of thing. And he had, he had been through a particularly trying time and it was very hot and um, it was full of mosquitoes and all this stuff. And he's finally going to sleep. And he says, before I left home, I had told someone that part of my purpose for the trip was to be inconvenienced. So I might see what would come from dislocation and disrupted custom. Hmm. Answer. Severe irritability. (laughs) (laughs) That is the best. (laughs) And that goes back to what you were saying about, you know, disrupting himself and going around is, um, of course, in the Catholic life, it's done on purpose. Yeah. You know, with through things like Lent, through things like... um, being able to look at some of your sufferings or other inconveniences mm-hmm. and offering it up or either at least mechanisms, whether or not we use them properly. Um, and it doesn't mean we're not attacked by severe irritability all of the time, mm-hmm. but yeah. it kind of goes along with that idea that I've mentioned about we're addicted to comfort, especially now much more than in his day, mm-hmm. in his day, meaning just when the book was written and, um, so it's not a bad exercise to have that as your goal if you go off on a trip like that. Because that you have to have that in mind for a Blue Highway trip, right? Yeah, you do. You might just find a no-calendar diner, and you're stuck, <laughs> man. Yeah, what are you going to do? And it's yeah. gross. Mm-hmm. There you are. And so yeah. it's it's your little test. So uh, one of the other things I had, it's funny how these these particular things go along with the themes you mentioned. He was in the desert at one point and just stopped said, wow, there's so much nothing here. And he lets his ears get adjusted, the, the car stopped, and it quits creaking and all this. And then he makes a list of all the nothing that he finds in particular that's in the desert. It's 30 things. Hmm. It starts with a mockingbird and morning dove. Mm-hmm. And it ends with earth, sky, and wind always. And he says, that's all the nothing I could identify then. But had I waited until dark when the desert really comes to life, I could have done better. To say nothing is out here is incorrect. To say the desert is stingy with everything except space and light, stone and earth is closer to the truth. And so, yeah, yeah, it's that idea of what's really here, being observant. Mm -hmm. You know. um, Yeah, yeah. Which is also later on in the book when... He's helping a friend build a wall, a stone wall, mm-hmm. and the friend's real proud of the wall. And then they're walking around, and they're walking on top of, like, old farmhouses that were broken down so long ago. There's just, a like, a hinge of a door left buried in the dirt or something. And he goes, oh, we're walking around on people's dreams. Hmm. 
And yeah, his friend gets yeah. really mad at him, and he realizes it's like saying his stone wall doesn't matter. Yeah, right. And that's not true. Mm-hmm. Agreed, yep. That's the memento mori. Mm-hmm. Remember death. We all come to it. So what are you doing? What's important? What are your priorities? A stone wall is not a bad priority. Mm-hmm. Yep, agreed. But you have to remember it won't last forever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> For sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What so, about you? Yeah, what, so I've got things? one here. So, um, so here he says, uh, the loneliness again. Now, I had only the idea of a journey to keep me going. Black Elk says, it is in the dark world among the many changing shadows that men get lost. Instead of insight, maybe all a man gets is strength to wander for a while. Huh. Maybe the only gift is a chance to inquire, to know nothing for certain. An inheritance of wonder and nothing more. Stars shone with a clarity beyond anything I could remember. I was looking into, actually seeing, the past. By looking up into the darkness, I was looking into time. The old light from Betelgeuse, 520 light years away, showed the star that existed when Christopher Columbus was a boy. And the Betelgeuse he saw was one that burned when Northmen were crossing the Atlantic. And uh, I love that perspective, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, it's the same thing as, you know, the big sky, you know, when you, when you go into Texas and you're seeing all the space, you know, th- there's something about that perspective, yeah. um, you know, that, that I think is, is really something. Um, right. Cause there's more than one way to get it. Just cause I was talking about the trees and everything. Um, yeah. For one thing, it's amazing being in all those trees and thinking about they're all connected. Mm-hmm. Um or being at the ocean. Yeah, yeah. You know, every place has its opportunity for those things. Mm-hmm. I just happen to grow up in Kansas. I can't help it. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> and there is there is that recurring theme, too, about um, future and past. Um, like, I remember one time he came upon someone working on a house, and there he was taking off this, like, 1950s veneer outside uh, you know, oh yeah, and yeah. there was a log cabin underneath it, right in Kentucky, yeah, yeah, and it was beautiful. You know, he said, you know, and the guy was straightening the house and everything, and kind of putting it back the way it was. But that's interesting, you know. So there is this, you know, is the future good? Is the past better? You know, uh, and the answer, of course, is in some ways, and in some ways, yes. So um, sure. Um, one of the things that I um, let's see if I can find this. He said. If you keep a mental list of things in America that you can kiss goodbye, add the tourist home to it. As an institution, oh. it isn't extinct, but nearly so, thanks to the insistence of the American vacationer for star burst in the sky motels. And um, so there, there's, there's, you know, so he's saying, no, the past was better, right? But now we have Airbnb. And I don't know if you've ever done that, but that's now my preferred thing to do. Oh, I haven't. And it's been so great. It's been like in Newport. What we did is we rented a house for, it was five days on the beach and it cost about $200 a night um, because we were kind of in between, we were in between uh, spring break and um, the summer. So right now it would cost more than that. But what right. we did, we got a house to ourselves on the beach, and um, I love it. You know, um, my wife has been using Airbnb for a while, and um, it's it's I just really like it. You know, so um, my daughter and I are going to go to Chicago here oh, soon, and we got yeah. an Airbnb near Wrigley. Oh, great! Yeah, so it's just. Um, Fantastic. And but but then on the other hand, also what you're talking about is to me it's it's a variation improve slash improvement. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. You get something like a hotel, but better. Right. So yeah. So it's the thing of I think one of the things the book reminded me of is he would take kind of glum looks at things, and of course we all do that. Mm-hmm. We look at things and go, "This is going away, and it was great. This is here, and I don't like it." This trend is terrible, but we can't foresee the twists that people will make and that will make it different, but mm-hmm. fill a, a need still that's in equally a good way, even though it's not what you're seeing right there. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing about giving up hope. 
about thinking everything's going to hell in a handbasket, which is mm-hmm. one of the trends in the country is, you know, everything's awful. They don't see the good, for one thing, mm-hmm. and celebrate that as well as here are the things we should try and fix. And they also don't say, I wonder what will happen that we can't predict. Airbnb, which my sister also loves. We don't travel enough for mm-hmm. it. Um you know, someday my goal, <laughs> uh, that would be yeah. great, you know, cause I love hearing people talk about their great experiences doing that. It sounds wonderful, Yeah, but it's, yeah, you've I got, love, you can't I love what you're saying hope. about hope. That's great. You know, cause yeah. it, there is this thing where, you know, this, this is bad and therefore it's all bad. Right. Is a very common position in the United States today. Um, mm-hmm. on many, 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 many things. <laughs> <laughs> yes. There's no shades of gray. It's like, well, this this piece of that is bad, but the whole is good. And then you know? they want to read backward into it, mm-hmm. saying, and for our whole history, we have been aimed, ordered toward the bad. Yeah. That's right. been the goal, is to do bad things because some people will take advan- will get advantages from it. And I was like, but that's also being too simple. Mm-hmm. Just like this book shows a picture of thinking of America on the blue highways, you can't it's kind of all the same, but it's not at all all the same. It's all unique and individual in mm. the same way, which is funny to think about. It's all the people being characters and, and having their one thing they're interested in, but it's so varied and unique and human. And that's this country and, and our people too, and people everywhere is, yeah, we can't help but be the same in some ways, but don't sell us short. Mm. Things can change for the better, things, and things will just be different. Mm-hmm. And they have. Just because you I mean, can imagine. Yeah, and, and they were, we're in the in past. Constant change, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. For sure. So, anyway. Yeah, love it. Yeah, I've, I've got so many highlights in here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, my, my little book darts are all over the place. <laughs> I, I so. love this line. Uh, in Poplar, Montana, where Sitting Bull surrendered six years after the Battle of Little Bighorn, I stopped for groceries. I just think that that's just... <laughs> just just awesome. I, I, it's just, you know, that's, it says a lot to me. Um, I just love how he put that. Yeah. Well, and there is a certain theme and it's not hammered necessarily, but he does come back to it where he's continually going, Oh, right. Because I'm the red man. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the thing where it's kind of always there in the back of his mind so that it pops up, but he's not dwelling on it. It's not defining him in the way that he's looking around and going, oh, because I'm like this, everybody's doing that. Um, and so, and that's also a healthy attitude. You, you don't forget who you are or yeah. what your point of view is or anything, but you know, everybody's not thinking of you like that. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. Um, and that works for I, Catholics I feel, I feel and like, Christians yeah. and yeah. everybody. You he know? had that Mr. Spock thing going on where he's, you know, Caucasian and um, Indian. Oh, yeah, you're and, right. He, you know, so, um, but I feel like, you know, at the beginning, you know, he was quoting a lot of Whitman, and then at the end, he was quoting a lot of um, Black Elk, mm-hmm. you know, so it was it was almost, you know, you, so we were wondering, well, what was his conclusion? I think that his conclusion was like harmony and those kinds of thoughts, mm-hmm. you know, that not unlike Buddhist thoughts, mm-hmm. um, that a lot of people kind of tend towards, um, you know, but I, I think that the, though that that's the direction in spiritually that he was kind of ending up. Mm-hmm. So I agree. Yeah. 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 So, so for sure. tons, tons in this book, even mm-hmm. if you just want a straight travel log, because the thing is, this was written so long ago, but you know, those people are all still in places like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even if some of the towns may be gone, um, there's new little towns like that, and there are, those people are there. Mm. Yes, indeed. And even in big cities, those people are there. You just have to have your community. Right, right. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I enjoy this book. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a keeper. But uh, It was a perfect uh, summer choice. I mean, yeah. the big road trip. Like you said, I mean, look how we kind of both lit up when it's like, oh, my blue highway thing. (laughs) Heck yeah. There's stuff in here for everybody to relate to if they've done any kind of driving around like that. Right. Definitely is. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Well, very good. Okay. So what's next for us? More summer. Ooh, 
<laughs> Moneyball is, is it our one next of my favorite one. movies. It yes, is. It is. <laughs> I love it. Baseball. Oh, I've, Brad Pitt. But not really baseball. Uh-huh. This is the baseball movie for the people who don't really care about baseball itself. <laughs> you bet. You bet. But who do enjoy Brad Pitt at his finest. <laughs> Just going to say. Absolutely. That's going to yeah. be good. Yeah. yeah. Looking forward I, to it. I could have seen it 10 times, mm-hmm. and I'm still super excited that I have a reason to watch it next week. Oh, I love it. I awesome. love it so much. That's the best. Good. Yeah. I'm glad. Yep. I'm glad. Yep. Cool. Okay. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. And, yeah. And uh, be sure to, uh, you know, pull off when you get tired. <laughs> Good luck finding the banana slug, which we will not explain. You have to read the book for that. <laughs> it's in here somewhere, isn't it? <laughs> I feel something on my shoulder. I don't know. <laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah. All right. We'll take care, everybody. Yeah, we'll talk to you again soon. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.